So Job 23, again the entire chapter, God's holy and inspired word from the Old Testament, Job chapter 23, God's word. Then Job answered and said, today also my complaint is bitter, my hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever. By my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot, my foot is held fast to his steps, steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the word of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many things that are in his mind. Therefore I am terrified at his presence when I consider I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. As for the reading of God's word, may blessed touch. So what's your favorite story? Well, there's a good chance it involves some sort of quest. As many of our great stories are epic quest. The cast-off prince pursues his right to the throne. A father seeks revenge for the death of his daughter, or a cursed prince seeks true love's kiss. And these odysseys can um, can search for all sorts of different things, maybe power or fame, immortality, the secret of life to save the world, or just to get back home to your loved ones. Yeah, such adventures inspire us, they give us hope that good wins in the end, and they give us an escape from our more mundane lives. And one of the more common journeys in these stories is to find God. Skeptics may seek God by reason, mystics pursue God through emotional and ecstatic experiences, and some hunt for God to challenge him. Indeed, in Scripture, these expeditions for God are generally not looked very favorably upon. In fact, they can be quite rebellious. Well, Job has his own quest for God, though his mission is not like the others, as it points us to a wonderful reality that we have in Christ. So as you remember from last week, Eliphaz gave it pretty good to Job. He accused Job of endless and massive sins and of being a godless heretic. Then he called him to repentance with a good hope of restoration. 
He basically abused him with false charges and then tried to sweeten it with a sugary dessert. Eliphaz came across more as a foe than a friend, a frenemy. But after such a tongue-lashing, how would you respond? How should Job make his reply? Well, we wouldn't find any fault in Job if he came out guns blazing. Some tough love from Job seems plenty fitting. And yet this is not what he does. Rather, Job basically ignores Eliphaz's made-up allegations of sin. Now, to remain silent when someone wrongly accuses you of crimes, that is, to turn the other cheek, this can be one of the hardest things for us to do. And yet Job does it. Instead of a quid pro quo, Job keeps now lamenting his sad state. How bitter is his complaint, he says. Its sourness will not go away. His cry was acidic yesterday, and it's still biting today. Eliphaz's pain medication has done nothing to ease the grieved soul of Job. Also, he says that his hands are heavy from groaning. Now, to have heavy hands refers most likely to prayer, as one of the typical postures of prayer was to have uplifted hands towards heaven. And Eliphaz did tell Job to pray more, but Job laments that his hands are exhausted from praying. He doesn't have the strength to keep his hands uplifted any longer. He's weary of praying. Now, it is true that prayer is a sweet blessing and a delightful communion with God. And yet, when our prayers go unanswered, when God seems not to be listening, prayer can be arduous and taxing. Prayer can be a burden that becomes too heavy to keep us from lifting it. And so Job feels his arms like lead weights, and he has no Joshua to hold them up for him. Thus, as he is being drained empty, he makes a wish. He says, oh, that I knew how I might find God. If Job only knew the path to the Lord, if he just had God's address to his house, he could type it into his GPS. Thus, Job is on an odyssey to locate God. He must unearth that grand old home of the Lord so that he can knock loudly on the door. Now, quests for heaven and the divine realm are not unusual in the ancient Near East. As was seen from the Tower of Babel, human hubris often sought God's high home to overthrow him or to obtain immortality or to win wisdom and fame. Seeking heaven is typically idolatrous selfishness, antagonistic against God, and often self-glorifying. Thus, we feel a bit suspicious of Job's wish here. Though in the context of our dialogue, this desire comes from a different place. You'll remember twice in the past two chapters, the wicked have been characterized as those who say to God, away from us. The evil want nothing to do with God. They banish them from their thoughts and lives. Well, in contrast to this, a need to find God comes from a place of devotion and faith. Foes run from God. Friends run to him. Thus, Job sets forth why he aches so badly for God's house. 
he searches for the Lord so that he may lay his case at his feet. Now, this is Job's disputation with God to vindicate his uprightness. He must argue his case to prove that he's suffering for the sake of righteousness. If Job finally got his day in court with the Almighty, then he would finally know what God has against him. He could learn the wisdom of God for making him suffer so intensely for nothing. Now, this desire to hold court with God is the same one that we've heard from Job for a while now. But there is a change here. Before, Job was apprehensive of such a meeting. He wanted it, but he was afraid that God would merely overpower him and that he would go blank and not know what to say. But here, Job has a newfound confidence. Note he says, would God dispute with him with great power or great strength? And Job replies, no, he would pay attention to me. He even, he's even assured that he would be acquitted by his judge, that Job would escape God as judge and come to know him as friend once again. Now, in chapter 19, Job professed his faith in God as his living redeemer. In chapter 16, he was sure that he had a heavenly witness to mediate for him with God. Well, these good statements of faith seem to be bearing fruit in Job. Earlier on, he was dubious and uncertain about meeting with God, but here he has good hopes of a positive outcome. This development in Job seems good. His trust in God to acquit him is maturing. And yet this firm hope is quickly dashed upon the rocks of an unsuccessful quest to find God. Note in verses 8 and 9 here that Job hits the highways and byways of the earth. Now to go forward heads east, while to go back is to go west, Left points north, and right veers south. Thus, all four points of the compass are portrayed in Job's quest here. Job has explored the four corners of the world. He investigates from the rising of the sun to its setting, and in every place, in each direction, he came up empty. God wasn't on the eastern horizon. He did not see him in the far north, nor in the deep south. Under every rock and in each deep cave, Job looked for God, but he found him not. He caught not a glimpse of him, not a whiff of his scent, nor a whisper of his voice. Job's quest for the Almighty was futile. Yet there is something noteworthy about this vain expedition. Typically, especially in Scripture, people wander all over this globe to get away from God. In Psalm 39, the psalmist tried to flee from the Lord's presence, and he couldn't get away. In Amos, in the last chapter, the wicked attempted to hide in all parts of the world, but to no avail. From the highest summit to the deepest trench in the ocean, God was there. The guilty run away from God's knowledge and presence, but find no hiding place. But quite the opposite here for Job, as Job is running to God. He needs to stand before the Lord to be seen and heard. Thus, Job isn't concealing his thoughts of the heart, but he's publishing them. 
This reveals then the ironic pain of Job. The wicked flee to escape God and never do, but he, as the upright one, explores for God to be vindicated and he can't locate God. This backwardness pains his soul. Indeed, note that no earthly temple will do for Job, but he needs the heavenly dwelling of God. Now, this reflects how Job lives outside the covenant community of Israel. As you know, God gave Israel his temple as the place to meet with God for atonement, for approbation, and for communication. In fact, Psalm 73 is a prime example of this. There, as you'll remember, the psalmist struggled in a way similar to Job. He did lament how he suffered as the righteous one while the wicked prospered. And the psalmist found peace with this trial of faith by going to the temple. But Job has no earthly refuge like this. He probes for the heavenly abode of God, and he comes up empty. And this is doubly frustrating as Job is confident of his godly piety. He can't find God, but note he said God knows his ways. Job now asserts how he has imitated God. He says, my foot is held to God's steps. I know his ways and have not turned one side or the other. The commands of God's lips are are never left Job. He treasured the Lord's words over his own opinion and even over his own life. Here, Job presents his uprightness according to the highest standard, namely divine imitation. The platinum grade for our piety is to be like God. Be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy as I am holy. And Job has met this quality control. He walked God's ways. His thoughts were pure, the pure thoughts of God, and he spoke only God's words. Job pursues God, not in rebellion or in arrogance, but he longs for God because he has imitated God. In fact, Job demonstrates good progress here in verse 10. Notice he says, The Lord tested me, and I shall come out as gold. Job now speaks of his suffering and agony as God's refinement. Just as precious metals are assayed and refined in the fire, so the Lord is currently doing to Job. Instead of being lost in ignorance, Job now is assigning meaning to his trials. That this is God's fiery test and Job will come out of the flames as gold. This is a step in the right direction. And yet, doubts remain. Job modeled his ways on God's. He seeks God to have his uprightness revealed. But coming before God can be an unpredictable experience. As he says next, God is unchangeable or God is one. Job confesses the oneness and immutability, I can't say it, unchangeableness of our Lord. The Almighty is constant, and he's unvaried. He's not fickle, and he does not change his opinions. Thus, as he says next, who can turn God? That is, who can change God's mind? 
There's no presenting new evidence or a new perspective to God to make the Lord say, oh, I didn't think of that before. No, the Lord does just as he desires. God is not moved by outside forces, but he acts according to his will and desire. Thus, the Lord is going to finish his appointed lot for Job. All the plans that lie in God's mind, he will do them just as he sees fit. Thus, Job needs to present his case before God, but he's well aware that one does not simply march into heaven to change God's mind. Job then finds himself between a rock and a hard place. He needs to find God to show how he's imitated God, but he's conscious of the fact that mortals do not change the eternal one. His devotion desires to meet God, and he has a measure of confidence of being proven upright, but apprehension still grips him. Unease about how it will go haunts him. Therefore, he says he's terrified. Coming before God fills him with dread. The Almighty, he says, literally dismays him. God has made his heart faint. Job is filled with that awkward mix of emotions, of confidence and nervousness at the same time. It's kind of like the night before you go on a big trip or have a massive game or a super important report. You're excited about the next day, but you're also super nervous. You want it, but you're scared of it at the same time. Kind of like oil and vinegar, you can emulsify these two emotions, but they keep separating, pulling you in opposite directions. Thus, Job longs for his divine imitation to stand before God, but he's also shaking at the thought of it. And he describes this awkward tittering with vivid imagery. In verse 16, literally says, God has softened my heart. And then in verse 17, he says, but I am not melted. The fear of the Lord has softened his courage like sagging butter. But he's not a fully melted puddle yet. His confidence of uprightness prevents him from being liquefied, but he's a soft mess of apprehension and anxiety. And with this, Job gives voice to a key dilemma of our religion and our faith. On one hand, he seeks God. He prizes divine imitation as his highest state, and he longs to be vindicated before God as his highest good. But on the other hand, entering the presence of the unchangeable God is a fearful thing. Being measured and weighed by the sovereign will of the Lord is terrifying and dreadful. This feels like a schizophrenic tension, namely that his highest good is also his biggest fear. His bold confidence is also his heaviest anxiety. His need to find God may be the very thing that does him in. He is softened, but not melted. And this strain lies at the heart of our salvation and covenant life with the Lord. 
in our sin, we may suppress it, but we know that our supreme good and most perfect blessing is to be with God. Every eternal benefit and advantage for us lies in the presence of the Lord. Even idolatry testifies to this. For at the end of the day, all idolatry is self-glorification. It's the attempt to make ourselves as a god. Pagans seek the highest good by trying to be a god, but believers know that this cardinal blessing is found with being with God. Yet this ultimate bounty is also a terrifying prospect. For the Lord is one, he's unchangeable, God is the unmovable mover. He acts as he desires, his holy and just will rules the day, and nothing can thwart it or alter it. And as sinners standing before God, this exposes the nakedness of our piety. In light of the holiness, we are shown to be anything but like God. Divine imitation is not what describes us, but resemblance of the evil one does. The very thing we desperately need to be with God is the very thing that will slay us. Thus, what can bring harmony to this paradox? Where does peace lie with the Almighty terrifying us so? Well, what is the source of Job's confidence here? He is part anxious and scared and part assured. He is softened but not melted. Well, what keeps him barely in the solid state? It's his uprightness. His positive divine imitation is the ground for him to seek God. It's the foundation of his confession that he will be acquitted forever by his judge. This reminds us then how Job is not like us. Job is better than us. He's more pious than we are. Therefore, the basis of his less than perfect righteousness directs us to the one who is perfectly righteous, our Savior Christ. How do we go from being scared to death before God to being at peace in his sight? Well, it's by righteousness, and since we have none of our own, it comes from another. Christ grants us his righteousness to us. He imputes his meritorious obedience to us, thereby reconciling us to God and then giving us this everlasting peace with God. By Christ, then, our eternal and supreme good becomes a reality, all of grace. Jesus turns our fear of condemnation into the confidence of being adopted as sons and daughters. He removes the terror of being seen by God in wrath, And he replaces it with the joy of being fully known and loved by the Father. Outside of Christ, we run from God. We will will hide and flee from him. But in Christ, we sprint towards the Father. For we are clothed in the Son, and thus we rejoice to be seen by the Father. The love of Christ removes the anxiety of sin from our hearts and he instills in us the peaceful confidence 
of being accepted by God. Indeed, with the temple curtain torn in the flesh of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ leads us before God's throne with boldness. And this firm footing we have in Christ communicates to us innumerable blessings. With Christ as our high priest, we have the assurance of grace and mercy. In Christ's resurrection, we are certain of God's undying love. Indeed, the confidence of Christ makes our hands light so that our prayers are that much easier. Sure, our prayers still often seem to go unheard or unanswered at times. Prayer for us can still be wearisome, but the intercession of Christ as our Melchizedek priest holds up our hands so that they do not fall down heavy. Yes, Jesus holds up your hands so that we can keep praying. Even when our prayers appear futile, Jesus assures us that he's working all things for our good and his glory. We may not understand how this all happens, but Christ imparts to our faith the certainty that it is true. Additionally, united to Christ, the power of the Spirit works in us tenderly so that we might imitate God more. As Job confessed here, God test him and he will come out like gold. Well, how much more so Jesus will do for you. Indeed, Jesus uses all of our life's miseries and tears to assay us. The darts and thorns of this fallen world is the crucible of our Savior. And by the hot temperatures of life, The Spirit sanctifies us and beautifies us to resemble the image of Christ. And dear saints, in the end, in your resurrection, Jesus will present you before the Father as gold. What an amazing outcome and blessed hope that is ours. That Christ lovingly makes you shine like gold, precious and glory. And glorious in the Father's eyes. Thus praise the Lord for the wonderful atonement we have in Christ, for the boldness we have in him, and may we ever bring glory to the Lord by our consistent prayers and as we grow in holiness to be more holy as he is, now and perfect in glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.